0: Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for Wednesday, July the 19th, 2017. I am Wes Fryer, joining you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School. And we've got about a month until we have faculty return and students coming back on Eclipse Day, August 21st. And I am joined, as always, by Jason Neifer, but Jason has actually, I think, had to dig a hole in the side of a mountain and has somehow managed to cobble together some old telegraph wire to get himself connected <laughs> tonight. Good evening, Jason.
1: Good evening, Wes. Uh, that's correct. Mm-hmm. I'm joining you from fabulous Helena, Montana, tonight, where I'm hanging out with some family. And um, the we are in a, a mountainous location uh, outside the city of Helena, where... There is one internet provider. It is a DSL line that gets only a megabit and a half down. And it just so happens that that wire was severed yesterday. So um, I am joining tonight via uh, I, I'm sounding nerdy, and I know shocking for me, but uh, I did have two different carriers' means to create hotspots. And I am in a roaming space for t Noble, So I have my iPad, which is still on Verizon, um, as my family transitions away from T-Mobile to Verizon. I'm sorry, away from Verizon to T-Mobile um, as more towers appear in Montana. And so I am joining tonight via a strong Verizon connection. And I'm a little pixelated, I think, and I, my audio is a little choppy and delayed, but I think we'll be able to make it through this incredibly important topic tonight. And, by the way, I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy. We don't start until the day after... Um, Labor Day this fall, but that doesn't mean that our preparations are uh, any slower. I imagine that the same fever that's starting to pick up in your school, West, is happening in ours as well. Only for us, it's online.
0: Well, you know, I don't think we could typically so. we could we could characterize a, a fever yet. But um, <laughs> we def, definitely have some excited folks as we've been refreshing some computers and doing doing some things like that. Um, But uh, yeah, it's it's still still vacation time for a lot of folks. Well, tonight we are going to do a special episode on net neutrality. And it is a topic that we have mentioned before a bit, but we really haven't gone in depth in. And as always, we want to invite everyone to check out our show notes and links, which you'll find at edtechsr.com slash links. I do see that we've got a viewer joining us live. That's fantastic. And we want to invite anybody who can join us to also participate in the YouTube chat. I've got to get mine open here, and uh, I'll also be interested in feedback. I'm using my wife's MacBook Air. Um, the last uh, session that I'd had this happen before, um, I have a, a 11-inch uh, MacBook, which has the A7 processor, and it, uh, it, it recommended that I close Google Chrome to cool off the machine a little bit. So we're hoping that, to not have that. All of the children have been told no streaming on the network. They're on their data plans. I have reset the router. We have our fingers crossed that it will be an uneventful evening. So (laughs) let's just kick it off by saying, Jason, what is net neutrality and why is this an important conversation for us to have tonight?
1: is the long-standing rule um, of the internet and the founders of the internet and the internet is decades and decades old um, was that every single bit of information so that's the micro piece of information bits make up bytes bytes make up you know your video your text traffic your email your uh, Internet of Things device getting commands from its central brain out on the Internet. All these bits are treated exactly the same. And that's where the term neutrality comes from. That, uh, the Internet, which is a series of 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 hundreds of thousands of pieces of hardware in the United States and around the world, when it sees something coming from YouTube, when it sees something coming from CNN, when it sees something coming from Jason's website, knifer.com, it treats every one of those pieces of data absolutely the same. So that means that when you go to one website, the internet speed of of the information coming back to you. Now, that all said, there are... many, many factors that could impact the speed of one website over another. Uh, For example, the server that hosts a website could be getting or the hardware that runs that server, and it could slow down or crash. So, determined speed, but the idea of the founders of the Internet was that that shouldn't impact the highway, if you will, of, of where things are going from point A to point B. So that said, Wes, can you think of an example of where it might be beneficial to give one person more speed than another?
0: Well, we've definitely seen the internet mature and, um, you know, transform in different ways since its humble beginnings. And I'm going to reference a couple books um, that were basically, actually I was looking at 2000 and 2001 is when they were published and we've at school, for instance, we've definitely seen the need to manage bandwidth and to try to provide access to a lot of things, but not to just not to have complete dumb pipes, which that is sort of what the Internet was designed to do to have the intelligence at the edge rather than in the middle. And so everything just passes you know, through without any kind of filtering or prioritization. I will put in the show notes a video that I watched, and this was from 2014, and it was a free the Internet video interview with uh, Larry Lessig, who's one of my favorite advocates for Internet freedom and one of the people who's helped via his books as well as videos and blog educate me about the Internet and about copyright and a lot of things that are really important. And he uses the analogy of electricity, right? Electricity is a neutral technology like the internet has originally been designed. So it doesn't matter when I plug in a vacuum. My dogs are hopefully not being too loud. They're, they're having a fight over here. Um, if I turn on a light switch, you know, if, if, I, if I plug anything in, you know, nothing is saying, wait a minute, is that – a Dyson, you know, vacuum cleaner, or is, is that, you know, something else? It all works because there are protocols and, you know, it's the right size plug and it has the right, you know, amperage and voltage and all that kind of stuff. Well, the internet should work the same way. I think that there, there can be cases. And so I come to this conversation in an interesting space since I, I did work for AT&T and we'll be talking about, you know, the big, providers, uh, Verizon, which we're thankful for tonight, providing Jason's connectivity, uh, you know, pixelated as it is, better better some than none, and it's actually pretty reasonable. Um, you know, the, the the large telecoms have a different perspective on these topics than many consumers and, and, and advocates of, of net neutrality. So I would say as a technology director in school, which we definitely, you know, are still putting the ed tech spin on things uh, as we talk about this, we, for instance, uh, want to provide access for for our teachers um, and students as as we can to access YouTube and to be able to access streaming video content. Um, we have we are in the process of still experimenting with how we can selectively allow for Netflix access. And I know many schools just completely have that shut off and. One of the main reasons for that is that it could just take so much of the bandwidth that that would not allow people to do other kinds of things. So we have something called quality of service on networks when we video conference, for instance, when we have a voice over IP phone system. So instead of being on copper lines and what's called POTS, which is plain old telephone service lines. You know, when you run your phone service over your regular data network, you do not want to drop packets and to have a loss in quality. You want that to be elevated usually at the top. And similarly with video conferencing and some other prioritization. So... It is a more complicated web and Internet and networking, you know, environment than it was when the Internet started in large part because of very high bandwidth applications that, you know, take a lot of data. But tonight we might get into talking a little bit about peer to peer and BitTorrent because those kinds of things and copyright have, have played into what the providers have wanted to do. And um you know in in school we we are we're filtering the internet obviously to uh in public schools comply with with uh the uh, the laws that re- that you know for e rate and things like that that require filtering uh, but there's also things that we're doing in terms of um wanting to have some packet inspection to be able to see what data packets there are and then making some decisions about what we do with those kind of things so it's interesting i'm a very strong advocate for net neutrality uh but at the same time um, having had a little perspective working for the t- uh, telecom for a couple of years and then as a technology director, I, I can see the need for, for packet prioritization. So I'll, I'll toss the question back to you, Jason. Where, where do you see the need to perhaps have some kind of management and not just a purely open dumb pipes network infrastructure?
1: Well, you mentioned Netflix and uh, BitTorrent traffic, and one of the things that people probably don't realize is that the vast majority of internet traffic goes to media and also file exchange via uh, processes called BitTorrents. For those of you that are unaware of the term BitTorrent, um, torrents to have kind of a a, a bad name in the world because they're associated a lot with pirating, but the torrent protocol, which allows for peer-to-peer file sharing. So in other words, Wes and I could set up a BitTorrent sync system where he and I uh, 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 put some files on our computer and share an encrypted code, and our computers would find each other on the internet and then be able to exchange files back and forth. It's an ad hoc way to share files without having access to a server. That's used by a lot of folks to trade in pirated music, pirated movies, pirated software. It's also used a lot by major corporations, universities, private individuals. I'm sure Wes and I have both utilized uh, BitTorrent Sync before to move large files from one place to another. Um, That is a a big chunk of the usage of the internet is to trade files for, for many, many different reasons back and forth. But the other big use is streamed media. There are times during the day, 6 to 9 p.m. in your local time zone, where the internet is clogged at a 60, 70, 80% rate by major streaming services. Netflix, Amazon Video, the major networks, uh, some of the news TV streaming services, YouTube, are all part of this process. And if that's true, um, and assuming that those that are advocating for net neutrality elimination are right, that means we might be able to create some nuanced ways of managing traffic so that those that want to utilize their internet connection primarily for streaming audio and video could get an optimized experience that they wouldn't otherwise. Um, and I also think that there are some people that use the internet for some way that may not want to pay for, you know, a full pipe. Um, as an example of this, if you're a school, and I have a reason later that I want to talk about where I think this could be used very evilly but, um, you know, if you're a school that doesn't allow streaming media anyways, right, maybe you cut a deal with your, your internet provider that we're not going to use any streaming. So give us a cut rate for bandwidth or give us more pipe knowing that we're unlikely to use it, but it can able to scale up to uh, a greater amount um if needed for individual projects and pieces. Um, and, you know, there's there's a fairly endless group of uh, arguments, I think, that suggest that, you know, it might be good to add more management in there. Another example, if you are a low-bandwidth user and you're only streaming, you know, four or five hours of television a week, maybe you should get faster internet than a big-bandwidth hog. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that, you know, Wes and I both share title bandwidth hog. Uh, Wes, because you have a net-connected family, Me, because my wife and I both very, it's, it's the primary way we consume media is via streaming. You know, that's, it's, it's the way modern households work. But, you know, there, sure, I think there are lots of potentially interesting ways that if you get rid of the notion that every bit is exactly equal, you might be able to tweak the systems in order to provide a more enhanced experience for a handful of, well, or maybe even many users across a larger network.
0: So I'd like
1: to to give a shout out
0: to a couple books and just say that overall on this topic <laughs> I'm I'm not going to recommend there there's there's some um some late night uh, host pieces from around 2014 that I was watching that I'm not going to recommend because they're they're not safe for for work as far as profanity and things like that um but but um it, it what they, one of the points that they was making in one of those videos was how boring that neutrality can be to talk about. And they were really poking fun of that. This does not sound like an exciting topic, but it the internet is hugely important to our society today and the way that we communicate and the way that individuals and organizations have voice and are able to participate in discourse. Um, it also is critical, I would say, to our economy. So much innovation and so much of what we see in terms of uh, new uh, businesses, and and actually, it's not just the big businesses; it's small business too. You know, really rely upon internet and connectivity, and then also just for governance and the future of our democracy. So I want to put a real big plug in to encourage everyone who's an educator out there to take on net neutrality as something that you help educate students about. It really is an important thing, and it gives us an opportunity actually to understand maybe not at a super granular level, but at a fairly basic level how the internet works and and how it how it was originally conceived and set up. Um, it was not set up to benefit big business. You know, it was not created to say, "Wow." how can we advertise more effectively to people and then boost the the revenue of these giant billionaire you know corporations and and companies uh, how 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 can we do that better it's it's really been co-opted we've talked in the show about how surveillance and different things have have been have been growing so here's the shout out to books first one is larry lessig this is 2001 the book is called the future of ideas this was one of the best books that that i read you know years ago that really helped me understand you know, TCPIP, IP packet networks, um, the way that the Internet came to be and, and the way that things like the Apache Web Server and and different kinds of technologies, open source, uh, you know, came about. And so this is this is a great book. And I've got Larry Lessig's uh, Twitter ID. He's Lessig on Twitter uh, to follow because he's been one of the most outspoken advocates for net neutrality. Yeah, I mean, he's just—he's a champion of so many ideas that are really important when it comes to intellectual property and copyright and also addressing um, the problems of, of money in Congress, which is very related to the topic we're talking now because big, big business and big companies are the lobbyists who are really driving a lot of this. The next book I want to give a shout out to is called Telecosm. It's a 2000 book by George Gilder. And interestingly, my copy uh, has the subtitle, How Infinite Bandwidth Will Revolutionize Our World. And I just put the uh, Amazon link in our show notes and saw that they renamed the subtitle The World After Bandwidth Abundance. And so one of the things with net neutrality that we'll hear the debate about is companies will say, oh, we don't want to be regulated because then we'll have a disincentive to invest and then we won't have broadband. And then, you know, Jason and Helena visiting his in-laws is always going to be doomed to these you know crappy Internet connections and he's never going to have fiber. Uh, We have had... Horrible investment in in bandwidth and, and in um, broadband overall across the United States relative to many other developed countries. I have not been to Japan. I have friends who teach there and others who 've traveled there and the level of investment is is quite different. Geography is also really different right Jason lives in montana I live in oklahoma yep. there 's a lot of wide open spaces, but the point is that government led uh, programs and reg and you know support and tax incentives. There's all kinds of ways government incentivizes this. Needs to play a role in the investment in the same way that we wouldn't have an internet um, an interstate highway system in the United States without you know federal support and and subsidies. Um, it's really important that government supports this kind of thing. And so we are not in a in a day. I think. Of, of bandwidth abundance for everyone, right? It's getting better. Um, but there, we really need to be strong advocates, not only for this idea of network neutrality, but also for the idea of government investment in services that provide for the common good. And Internet connectivity and, you know, huge amounts of bandwidth are definitely, um, you know, things that we need on the horizon. We are not going to be able to participate fully in the 21st century whether you think economically, civically as citizens, um, or or socially, uh, unless we have strong connectivity, and so I think that this issue touches on a on a just a wide a wide host of reasons why it's important. Um, but we can think about it as as full participation. As a as a former social studies teacher, Jason, do you do you share views about that as far as why why this touches on civic issues in terms of citizenship?
1: I do. And one of the things that I've always loved about the Internet is that it is a great democratizer, I think, because information doesn't have to be corporate to be distributed in a wide way. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you're not deep in the issue, you may have kind of a a hard time wrapping your brain around this. And there's a really great graphic that I've put in tonight's show notes uh, Edtechsr.com, by the way, is where you can find our show notes each and every week of of things that we're reading uh, to help prepare for the show But this graphic was, uh, there's there's been a a dozen of these that have gone around the Internet since net neutrality was first questioned um, by the FCC in the United States. It's been, you know, 15 years of debate about this concept. But um, the graphic looks like if you've ever looked at a satellite television flyer that's advertising uh, uh, television packages. So, For $20, you get the basic package, and you get these seven channels. And if you want to add a little um, movie channels, you could pay $13 and get that. And if you want to add in sports channels, you can get $17 more to do that. And the bill starts getting larger and larger and larger and larger. And what this graphic proposes a net neutrality to do is that you start off with um, a tiny bit of bandwidth, 500, uh, uh, I think it's 500 megabytes, which, I, God, I hope I'm reading that wrong. Yeah, 500 uh, megabytes uh, to start off with that you can go to anywhere on the Internet. But then if you exceed 500 megabytes, and by the way, I'll, I'll exceed easily 500 megabytes tonight broadcasting the show with Wes, right? Like, it's not that much in 2017 to to eat up 500 megs of, of bandwidth, especially over a month, right? But then, to get access to other stuff, according to this vision of net neutrality, you need to spend um, ten dollars to get, um, um, you know, access to a certain, a certain uh, predetermined music sites like perhaps Spotify and 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 uh, uh, Pandora. And then you could spend an extra ten dollars a month to get streaming TV access, and then if you want news access, it's going to cost you five more dollars a month channels that's going to be another fire international news channels that 's another five dollars if you want sites for kids it's going to cost you fifteen dollars a month yada 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 and this sounds just like my a t and t
0: bill I used to pay because that 's yeah. what it is you know literally
1: absolutely and you know it's it that is is that you get this little bit of bandwidth right that they can go anywhere. But a whole lot of the internet is not YouTube, Netflix, Facebook, or, or the New York Times, right? And so uh, just between me and Wes, for example, we have probably two dozen websites that we either manage or directly are responsible for the content for that are not major websites, right? Which means that if you exceed your 500 megabytes in a month of non-vetted services under this vision of net neutrality, you don't get to go to that website anymore. Right? Which means that if you have a crazy idea and you want to open up a free blog and broadcast around the world, you wouldn't be included in that because cable companies, internet providers, satellite providers of internet access. They could choose to limit based on, for example, maybe Netflix is kicking back something to the cable company to get more access or perhaps, um, a, a popular news source, maybe from one end of the political spectrum or the other is paying internet providers to get kicked into a package or maybe provides no, um, or provides no limits to those particular websites. The problem when you get rid of net neutrality is that I don't even know if we could dream up the problematic scenarios that make it terrible because, you know, you're adding in a component of of profit margins where there, there shouldn't be, right? The internet should be a completely unencumbered, you know, highway of information and net neutrality helps protect that.
0: So we are going to be more political tonight as far as talking about policy and I think encouraging advocacy than perhaps we normally are. And I want to make sure that we point out to you um, the fourth link that we have. I don't know what, what number it will be on our actual show notes on the post. Uh, but it is the uh, Save the Internet website by Free Press. And so it's SaveTheInternet.com. And as we break down different elements of net neutrality, talk about what it is, talk about negative scenarios of what we could end up, you know, paying and, and doing and things that we, we might not be able to have happen because, you know, innovation's quashed because, you know, small folks can't get their voice, et cetera. Um, this is one of the best websites to go to to take action, um, to sign a petition, to make calls, to contact your uh, senators and your representatives and we were talking just right before we joined the, sh- the actual show and started the call that I don't think we're hearing nearly as much about net neutrality as we did back in 2014 when we had the campaign to stop um, SOPA. And uh, the issues are very similar or identical to what we have now, except that we have a president who is very uh, anti many things and one of those, and he's also very pro business. And so companies like AT&T and Verizon and Comcast and these players do not want to be regulated and they do not want the federal government, you know, telling them what they can and they can't do. And so one of the important things to recognize is that under the Obama administration, and it was ironically when Tom Wheeler was the chairman of the FCC and he was a former uh, You know, telecom guy actually, so that people were thinking he wasn't going to maybe really be advocating for consumers. We had a reclassification of internet as a Title II service. And so Title II is part of the U.S. Code that uh, regulates phone service. And this is the, re- the reason why we've got you know universal service fees and then there's different kinds of regulation. And you can get phone service anywhere in the country, right? I haven't read an article in the last couple months about this. It's interesting because Verizon and some other companies have been lobbying to try to say, hey, if you can get cellular and, and you can actually get these little boxes now that will make a regular phone you know, plug in to cellular cellular they're trying to um to do away with some of that legislation but you know you can get electricity anywhere in the united states basically as far as i know i mean uh, there's obviously places way out in the boondocks but i mean it's maybe, maybe maybe how would you say that statement jason is it i mean you can't get electricity everywhere but you with phone service What what is it what, what is the rule like if if it if it's a if it's a city that's that's incorporated in any way as a town, you know, I think I think the companies are required to bring phone service to to that
1: municipality, right? I mean, is that Yeah, I think it it varies from state to state, but I think the way to put that is is that there are consumer protection laws in the books in probably all 50 states that provide a set of standards to say if you are within a reasonable distance of, you know, a municipality, then you have the right to electricity and phone service and, you know, Companies will, as a public service, right, like remember, utilities are public services, will help grant you access to, you know, basic common utilities as part of that process. And I think that's what applies in in, in the way you're approaching the issue.
0: Okay. And so what's important is that there have been some different court cases that have been heard as the FCC, under a previous administration, wanted to regulate uh, this and, for instance, tell companies like Comcast, hey, you can't block all this BitTorrent traffic or in in some cases, they were actually injecting code to disrupt what was happening and confuse and and basically try to stop uh, the BitTorrent uh, traffic from happening. Um, They were told that they couldn't actually regulate because they didn't have this Title II authority. And so a really important thing that happened in the closing months of the Obama administration is Internet connectivity was reclassified under Title II, and that gives the FCC the authority yep. to regulate. And so one of the things that's happening now is AT&T and Comcast and Verizon and others are pushing to reclassify and basically flip-flop to say, oh, nope, we're not going to consider this Title II. And the problem is that would take away the regulatory power which the FCC has. Now, under the current FCC chair appointed by Obama, he wants to gut net neutrality. Um, As with many other um, Trump appointees, uh, he he wants to really just you know do away with with many of the things that have been done uh, under recent administrations and and kind of reverse course with things and so I think we're going to see a bigger fight right now. There's a comment period that's open and the FCC can receive comments about this. But I but I personally, West Fryer, don't think that our comments are going to be heard and they're going to do much. I think the fight is really going to be with Congress to take action and for Congress to pass legislation which reclassifies Internet as Title II and or explicitly gives regulatory authority to the FCC. And so – you know, it's it, This is something that we're going to continue to fight. And I will say this, and this is another reason why Larry Lessig is is one of my heroes. And I really want to support certain groups. We need to put these in the the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is really a, a wonderful advocacy group that is fighting for these rights. And we need to to send them checks. You know, I have actually sent them some money. I'm going to send them some more money. I think that's a very good company or not company is a good nonprofit to support because they're advocating against these corporate lobbyists, which they're vastly outgunned by AT and t and, and Comcast and all this. Um, the other, um, the other thing in terms of, of advocacy and, and support is besides, you know, looking at supporting EFF, um, we need to, um, You know, we need to reach out and and contact our representatives and our senators and tell them that we care about this. And as we hopefully are going to hear more about it, because the pendulum is probably going to swing, right? They're probably going to reclassify data um, and and take away Title II, and it's going to be up to Congress. Um, I think that we need to to be on the advocacy bandwagon with our representatives, letting them know that this matters um, because we – what I, I remember what I was going to say. Lessig is, is is about fixing democracy first, and we have a huge problem in the United States right now with the way that money buys policy. And so what we're talking about with network neutrality is really a manifestation of that, where big companies are being able to buy the policy that they want. And so rather than having decisions made by the people for the people, it's really by the corporate-supported Representatives and senators for the corporate interests who are paying, you know, most, if not all of, of, of their bills. So call me a cynic. But I think that's the reality that we have here. And And this is really a it's not a microcosm, but it is this is an example of bigger issues which we have in our country with respect to campaign finance. And those are also things that we need to address because we had antitrust legislation in the United States. And I've, I've read that, you know, if the Standard Oil Trust had been called corporation, we would have anti-corporate law because we are not well served as individuals when – we have monopolies and when we have oligopolies and what tends to happen, and this is happening globally, not just in the United States, is really large companies are trying to use their money to buy influence, to keep their monopolistic advantage. And we, we benefit as consumers from competition. And so we need to be, you know, advocating for that. Is it anybody else come to mind besides, besides EFF, Jason, to put on a list of,
1: of folks that are fighting the good fight here? Um, I would also start looking for other folks to get involved in this and fund those as well. And the one that I'm waiting to 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 make a bigger stink about this is the ACLU. And one of the reasons why is that I perceive, in my humble opinion, one of the ways this is going to also play out is in the courts because I honestly think my First Amendment rights are impacted if I lose a major channel for communication. Um, to uh, to communicate out my my views of the world, right? It, this might have been a different discussion in 1990, but in 2017, the internet is considered to be an incredibly important part of free speech, especially in 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 countries like the United States where we have significant penetration of the internet in the marketplace. And if tomorrow this goes away, and if I run Jason's imp- incredibly important blog dot that, that's a, a limit to my free speech. If a corporation can step in and on be, my behalf limit access to my words to another person because I have not paid them to or set up a peering service, which is another way people describe this. A peering service would be an agreement with me as a website owner with a um, a company like I don't want to blame Comcast individually here because it's it's, it's a lot of internet providers that are looking to get rid of net neutrality. But you know, paying Comcast and other providers to give my uh, a site uh, priority access, like if I have to pay a bunch of money to do that. Uh, when this previously was a free service to me, other than the hosting that was available to me, that is a minimization of my free speech. And so I would say even encouraging civil liberties organizations to get involved in this fight on behalf of us consumers is, is, is a really important part of this process. Um, I also think, and, and I want to push the conversation a little bit in a, in another direction, um, what this means for schools. Um, I, about this because i run an online school right i'm the assistant director of the montana digital academy we're a state virtual school in montana we serve thousands of students a year in a supplemental capacity um i don't like i i can't even wrap my brain around how we would deliver students across the state of montana and 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 there's a couple of different ways to look at the first one is that i can assure you we do not have the funding to pay the 25 different internet providers in Montana to give priority access to our learning management system. We also utilize dozens of major websites and hundreds of smaller websites to help deliver curriculum objects. Um, As an example, my organization runs its own video server to minimize use of YouTube, Um, YouTube suddenly becomes more important if that's a premier provider of non-pay-for video service. I I can't imagine a scenario where we do that. And what do you tell a kid who has an Internet connection at home, didn't buy a premier package, they have Internet, quote-unquote, access is to Amazon.com and, you know, like a, a YouTube clone that offers you know uh, uh, pirated versions of 70s TV shows, right? Like I don't get how that works, and um, it seems to me that of the internet was supposed to be, that information is freely available, not unlike a library, but if you start choosing which books are more important than others, you've gotten rid of the internet as library concept. And um, uh, even uh, simple things like your district's website, right? Like if you're hosting on your own server in your own district, you know, and let's say you're in a big city, um, uh, West is in a more populated area than I am, although we're both in relatively rural states, what happens if you're in a town with dozens of potential internet providers, like who do you need to pay money to get into a pool of acceptable websites? Will nonprofits be exempted? Will schools be exempted? Um, it seems to me that nonprofits and schools are a big enough cash cow for Internet providers that they'd have an interest to help build those schools. And I just don't understand how schools would work their way around this if the worst case you know, scenarios happen. Um, where do you think you would be as a tech director, Wes, in this world?
0: I don't know. I mean, I think we're going to be in a very different place. And I think um, the Internet, I mean, as we know it today, it just it, it, it relies upon this idea that, that the information and the packets are, are not prioritized and, and filtered and that we've got we've got that open access. So, um, yeah, we we I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a very good answer. That's not a very provocative answer. Um I I just I know as a society um this this would have big impacts. And look, I recognize, I said this at the beginning, <clears throat> that the internet is different, the networks are different than they were now. Look how hostile the networking environment is today, right? I mean this was the thing if you remember back on Windows XP, you know, and pre service pack three. I mean even with Service Pack 3, probably. I mean, you just plug in a Windows machine straight into a cable modem or a DSL modem, and, you know, you've got ports that are open, folks scanning, you know, vulnerabilities. I mean, the network, the Internet and the net, and networks have become much more hostile than they were in the past, and they're much more complicated, too, because we have so many more devices that are connecting to them. So I, I'm, I definitely understand that we need network management, and we need to, you know, be able to decide how to utilize bandwidth. But deciding how to, how to prioritize packets within your network and how you're going to filter and perhaps block content and do that within your school is a lot different than saying globally <clears throat> as a value. We are going to say that the large companies get to dictate you know, who gets to access what? You know, there's other aspects of this that involve international law and, you know, what, what countries are going to allow. And frankly, the bad behavior of the United States in terms of, uh, I think exceeding the scope of what we could legally do with our intelligence services and, and our law enforcement, homeland security, you know, has caused some countries to be pretty upset about, peering and about, you know, the the ways in which – I mean, we've had – the, there's a term for it, but, you know, these huge fiber connections that, that come into entire countries and, and basically we're, you know, sucking all of the data out of that and and being able to surveil that, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of a tenuous thing. You know, the internet has has exploded and developed, but this has happened so quickly and it really does rely upon open connectivity. I know a few months, you know, maybe a year ago, Iran was talking seriously about trying to just have its own internet and just, you know, cut things off and, you know, I mean, that just, it seems so weird. But, you know, the idea that we are a globally connected society and that we have this access that if Jason, like you said, puts up a website or I do, you know, theoretically anybody in any part of the, of the world should be able to access that. Things are blocked and, you know, it's not, it's not a perfectly flat world when it comes to that. But I, I don't know what the answer to that is, Jason, as far as where that puts us as, as schools. Um, I will say that, you know, I, politically, I know that as educators, my school, and i 'm sure most schools are very sensitive to that in terms of what kind of advocacy you know during the election and things like that for students. Th- these things can be posed to students um, in in a way that invites them to have conversation and discussion about this, and we really do need to probe. I think deeply what is motivating these kinds of policies and whose interests are being served and what what is the public interest. Right. I mean, is there a public interest here and does that public interest compete with corporate interest? And I think that those things can be posed in a way that allows students to really investigate and dig and, you know, maybe we're not, you know, as a teacher, if I'm a social studies teacher, I'm not coming out and just saying, kids, get on your Twitter right now, you know, contact your your congressman. I'm saying that as a citizen out here, you know, this isn't the voice of my school. This isn't, you know, the voice of, of any group that I'm professionally working for. This is West Friar Citizen saying that. But there's definitely ways that we can and should approach this. Um, that let students grapple with these kinds of issues and talk about some fundamental things, right? Because the, the idea of a public interest versus a corporate interest, Larry Lessig made the point in the, the video that I mentioned to say, you know, we, we don't need corporations trying to say what the public interest is because corporations are fundamentally about making money and I am not anti-capitalist. I'm very pro-capitalist. I think it's a phenomenal system that has, has, You know, allowed us to have amazing uh, monetary prosperity, but I, but I'm like, uh, who's the CEO of Whole Foods? Like with compassionate capitalism. I mean, there's a, there are ways that we need to look at what happens with unbridled capitalism, and we need to humanize that, and we need to look at the proper role that regulation, as well as just you know, self regulation by individuals, can play into all that. So I want to give a shout out to Peggy, by the way. She's given us a couple good articles that I've added to the show notes which, as we mentioned, you can find at edtechsr.com slash links. Um, Ars Technica from July 12th, if the FCC gets in its way, we will lose a lot more than net neutrality. And from virtualization and cloud review on July 12th, uh, why net neutrality matters. And so, um, you know, I think the – I don't know who's going to be able to make this – I would say sexier, but just a a more appealing and engaging topic. Um, You know, it's it's something that we need people to be conversant about and to have opinions about. It's one of these things that if you explain it to people – a lot of times they are going to be coming to this view to say, yeah, that's right. We shouldn't have, you know, a company just deciding that, that, you know, I can't see such and such, or this is going to be so much slower. Um, But we're not there yet. So I don't know. It's a, maybe it's an educational challenge for us to, to
1: take on and figure out, you know, obviously sure. there's a lot of people
0: thinking about it. But
1: Well, and let me ask another question. Cause I, you know, I, I, a, well, Wes and I run side businesses, right? We're both available to train. We've both sold stuff online. I run a debate materials business that that relies entirely on the internet for sales. I'm I'm a little terrified as an entrepreneur about this, and there's a reason why, in my humble opinion, that there are some cable companies that might be that might advocate for this, but Google is against this, and Apple is against this, and Microsoft is against this, and Facebook is against this, and all the companies that you know, whether whether you are uh, technologies or not, the bottom line is is that the vast majority of technology companies outside the internet uh, uh, space. Um, are against this. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is that, imagine this for a moment, most people know the Mark Zuckerberg story of creating Facebook, right? He uh, was a student at Harvard. He came up with a social network. He may or may have not stole some... uh, uh, Some intellectual property for those two very tall twins uh, that he went to school with at uh, uh, Harvard. But the bottom line is, he took an idea um, to recreate an old fashioned notion, a a social or a a, 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 a Facebook, um, which were popular in colleges uh, decades ago, and bring them into the internet age. And now it's one of the most popular websites in the history of the internet, right? Imagine for a moment if Mark Zuckerberg as a creator had to pay cable companies to get premier access to his product in order to be able to be accessible universally to the end user, right? Facebook wouldn't exist. Um, YouTube was created as a video sharing service before it was ever sold to Google. Um, it it was a, a, a solution in a time where streaming video, or streaming video files, I just realized I'm not in the frame at all of my video. I'm like, I'm waving my hands. It's a great shot of your hair, though. It's been looking good. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's a... Um, the the bottom line is is that uh, you know YouTube was uh, an alternative to something that what used to be super expensive, right? And they had to go through rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds and rounds of um, you know testing and creating technologies and making it cheap enough to where it could eventually turn a profit. But imagine for a moment if YouTube, in an era where streaming bandwidth was super expensive, had to make agreements with you know, the thousands of Internet providers in the United States to get access to their end users, YouTube would not exist. And I think that in an era where I think it's great that we have an entrepreneurial culture in the United States, I think it's great that you can build a tool that's useful to someone and make millions of dollars because you've created something that hasn't existed or meets a need on the Internet in a world where, your end customer may not be able to access you because you are not part of one of the packages that they purchased. Like, it it really hurts, I think, the entrepreneurial spirit of the United States, and in particular, it really hurts innovation on the internet. Like, any small potato person should be able to run a business without having to pay, you know, in my mind, usury fees to the cable companies in order to get access to their, their end folks. It should just be access to the internet, right? I, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't argue that internet access shouldn't cost. I think there's a cost to that. Maybe it should be public and maybe it shouldn't be. But the bottom line is, is once you have access to the internet, the internet should be yours, right? Like at that point, it should be available to you equally. Um, Wes, can you think of any changes you'd have to make as an entrepreneurial to, entrepreneur to do with this?
0: Yeah, I mean, what you're saying as far as paying for access for fast lanes, um, you know, connect fees, uh, and just scaling, right? I mean, maybe you're going to be able to put a little website out, but are you going to be able to scale? Um, we've mentioned tonight yeah. cloud services and in... Um, the virtual, virtualization review article, Why Net Neutrality Matters, uh, that Peggy mentioned, they talk about that as far as, as cloud services. You know, it's unbelievable right now what you can do as an entrepreneur, you know, being small and acting big by using the Amazon cloud or now Microsoft's in that game and, and IBM and, and Google as well, right? Big time that these things can ratchet up as your capacity needs increase and as you have, you know, more visitors, and it's not just your little web server in your garage running that's going to be cratered, but you know, you, you build these things and they're put onto these cloud services and then they can scale and they can grow. Well, the cost of those things right now is just, you know, very, very small. And so the potential for those things to get much more expensive, uh you know has huge implications for what's going to be viable as far as as entrepreneur entrepreneurial uh, initiatives and things like that yep peggy's dropped into the chat four key net neutrality principles to be maintained no matter what no paid fast lanes no unreasonable interconnect fees rules that apply to both wireless and wired internet, and and I actually I want to throw in a, a little curveball here because one of the things that's interesting with the way that net neutrality and stuff has 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 devolved, our cable companies would like us to pay for bandwidth like we pay for water, right? If I leave my spigot on in the backyard with a sprinkler or whatever, like I'm going to have a big water bill if I if I leave that on for a couple of days, but internet. On the home side, the residential side, the, the, the non-cellular side is generally that way. You know, you pay for an amount of bandwidth uh, here at our house. You know, I think we're paying around $70 a month for um, – what I think is somewhere between 120 and 150 megabits down and like okay. 20, 20 to 30 up, something like that, which is pretty fast. There's another tier that Cox Cable has above that that we could, that we could, uh, step up to, but this has, you know, been pretty adequate. However, on the cellular side, you are charged with a quota. Now, interestingly, all of my family is on unlimited plans with T-Mobile. So that quote is not there. But at at some points, you know, we were limited. And for a little while, even at school, um, when I was was tethering with AT&T, and I'd been with AT&T back in the day and everything too. You know, I was limited to five gigs a month. And maybe at one point you heard that and you're like, wow, that's amazing. How could you ever, you know, use that much? But, you know, you stream Netflix, you use uh, high definition video on YouTube and and upload stuff. It's, you know, pretty easy to burn through that in a month. So anyway, yeah. it's it's interesting that from a cellular standpoint, We are paying, you know, essentially by the kilobit, megabyte, gigabyte, whatever, but we're not doing that on the, the enterprise residential side. The other curveball I want to throw in here that, that I put, I think I put a link into this is T-Mobile, which Jason has recently switched over and I think we've been two or three years to T-Mobile. We're saving quite a bit of money as a family with. Um, and we're fortunate where we live in Oklahoma City that, that the connectivity has been great. You know, when we go out to rural areas and stuff like that, you know, not, not as great. But they have a thing called Binge On. And so it allows video as well as music services to be able to stream free and not to count against your quota. And this is something that consumers are kind of like, yeah, that's awesome, man. Let me stream as much, you know, music and, and video as I can. But it actually violates this idea of network neutrality because T-Mobile is deciding these are the specific services which we're going to make free. And, right. you know, comparatively, they, they are the streaming service if it's not part of their, of their binge-on service. So, right. uh, I don't know. Do you have any opinions about that, Jason? And how do you, I mean, we're not seeing, ab- you know, consumer advocates get out and say, stop the binge-on program, T-Mobile, but it does violate, <laughs> you know, net neutrality.
1: Stop watching Netflix, T-Mobile users. <laughs> um, yeah, right. you know, I do have a thing about that. Like, I, I, you know, I moved to T-Mobile because it was an unlimited plan, even though Binge On was an option I had at a lower bandwidth rate. Um, now, every basic plan at T-Mobile is considered to be an unlimited plan. It just depends on what unlimited means, right? But I I, I would say that, that, no, we shouldn't have plans like that. Like, it's either an internet pipe or it's not. I would also argue that um, we probably shouldn't have caps either. Like, that also violates a tenant, in my mind, of that. Although, you did make a very eloquent argument, your argument, um, uh, that you necessarily would be saying, but, you know, we pay for extra water, we pay for extra electricity argument. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that, um, internet's it's important a- enough in 2017 that to make it unlimited and have universal access all the time.
0: The, the reason I brought up the George Gilder art, uh, book, which again, my version says how infinite bandwidth will revolutionize our world is like lay the fiber, baby, right? Yeah. Bring on the fiber connections. And now they're talking about fifth generation mobile data, right? Which is going to be beyond the 4G LTE tiers. Um, and I, I definitely want to mention an article. Oh gosh, we're we're kind of flying through this hour. This is a fascinating article. Did I get it in here? Uh, this is about... Um, uh, SpaceX and whether or not they're going to become the—I um, guess I didn't drop it in there. So the article says that uh, Elon Musk, who, if you don't know, I have a major—I um, don't have a man crush on him, but like he's the man in terms of disrupting you know huge parts of our society and doing some great things, you know, with electric cars, with solar, with Solar City, and with SpaceX from the, on Tesla's side for their electric vehicles, they're going to need, and self-driving cars in general, right, are going to need high bandwidth, always-on connections, which really need to be satellite connections that aren't based on, you know, land towers that, that may or may not, you know, work over the next hill. And so they have a proposal, SpaceX does, to like triple the number of satellites that we have in orbit and using both a low orbit and a mid-range orbit. And we're talking like gigabit connections that they're going to be able to provide. And so what could happen here is is very exciting as almost everything that Elon Musk touches becomes. And that would be that every single Internet service provider on the planet may then compete with SpaceX because they, you know, could provide this ubiquitous high speed uh, Internet service. And right now, I think satellite is pretty expensive. We were just up in the mountains of Wyoming yeah, And we did get, you know, I was surprised, like 20 megs down. And then the up was more like, you know, two to three. But still, that was – I was pretty impressed by that. Uh, not very many years ago, and I was talking to an, a friend who lives east of I-35 <clears throat> in north of Oklahoma City, northeast of Oklahoma City. You know, they were only getting downstream with satellite. They still had to use their phone line to be able to upload. Right. So, you know, the, the landscape is going to continue to change. But I think that – um this provides a great opportunity back to the school side to have good conversations with students about important stuff, right? And who needs to understand how the internet works? Well, probably everybody at some level, right? Because if policy changes that fundamentally, you know, throws out of whack the, the whole way that the internet has come about and, and that innovation has happened, it's going to have a dramatic effect on our society. It, it probably... Probably will but it 's also a good opportunity to talk about some of these other issues with regard to corporate interest public interest and and I just um, I, it, this is actually making me think that i want to I want to talk to some of our social studies teachers, especially at our middle school and high school, uh, and, and see if they 're bringing this in right I mean this may not right. How does this fit in your curriculum? Well, yeah, what year does this? I mean, if you don't get to the Vietnam War hardly or the Gulf War, you know, where are you going to get to network neutrality uh, issues in an American history course? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure, um, how you're going to, you're going to find it, but certainly if you're talking about current events and if you're dealing with civics and you're talking about citizenship, you know, there's important ways for this to intersect. Gosh, it is three minutes till the top of the hour. Jason, where has the time
1: gone? I had a feeling we would be um, active and engaged in this topic. And, you know, I, I guess the part that's hardest for me is that I just don't know if this is getting talked uh, talked about very much. Um, you know, I know people in the know have written uh, and commented at the FCC. But I think Wes is right that this is probably a foregone conclusion and where we need next to have this discussion, so we need to be starting to push our senators and representatives to intervene on behalf of these regulatory agencies and stop this this action. And I do also think, and and I I think there is a credible threat to the First Amendment here. Like a lot of people like to jump on the First Amendment as a kind of a Trump amendment uh, for a lot of ills in society. But the bottom line is, is that. You know, it may have been different in 1990. I don't think it's different in 2000 or I think it is different in 2017 that um, you can't uh, you can't minimize my access to other people and not impact my ability to freely speak. All of first amendment, right? Like, I do think that there's something there to that. And, um, I don't know. Maybe it becomes knife or v. Trump, uh, in the, uh, the court case, but there's something there, right? And I do feel like that, especially in the era of, um, you know, uh, news as a business has, has somewhat uh, imploded, and nonprofit news agencies have stepped in their uh, stead to do some of the investigative journalism that we used to rely on news sources for. ProPublica is an excellent source for that. Um, you know, as a nonprofit, you know, does ProPublica buy into the you know Comcast slash uh, CenturyLink slash you know blah 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 cabal to get access universally to their customers? And it it just it terrifies me. And I think you know the internet's just too amazing to, you know, muck with the notion of bits being completely equal.
0: We need to go to Geeks of the Week, but I'm going to leave you with an image of the Avatar movie. I don't know if you like that James Cameron movie, but my my youngest is just so excited for the next series. I think there's going to be three more Avatar movies. But, you know, the basic thesis is that corporations are the ones exploring space and and they're the ones, you know, going out to, you know, mine resources. And it's a very, you know, corporate dominated society we are seeing really interesting um and interesting is not even a, a great word um but you know pretty amazing network effects with the size of companies and corporations today we've got a real fight on uh, in in most cities now between amazon and walmart and you know big retailers as far as trying to you know sell us everything and you know we need to pay attention to where the where the small guy, where 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 the the little entrepreneur, uh, you know, small business. We 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 shouldn't just cave in and and give away our democracy and our our republic uh, to the corporations. And I think that we've we've evolved over time to a place where we really we need a populist uprising where we are going to basically take back the reins of power from. Uh, corporate interests, which are largely driving much of what we see either happen or not happen, right? Why is there not, uh, healthcare reform really? Well, insurance companies kind of like where we're at today. You know, I think pharmaceutical companies, they kind of like where we're at. And so, um, it, it's just important for us to help our citizens become more educated and and hopefully not to move to an avatar world where, you know, the corporations rule the universe. Um, I don't think that would be a good place. Maybe we're we're headed there, um, you know. despite whatever Jason or I may say, but I I think that we've got quite a bit of latitude and good leadership still matters and ideas matter and they make a difference. And so the, just the things and the conversations that you have listeners out there and watchers with your students can really make a difference in hopefully getting, getting kids to think about public interest, corporate interest um, who gets to make the rules and what matters, you know, and who is served by those things. So, Jason, would you like to give us a Geek of the Week, which may or may not be related to net neutrality? But that's fine, because there are no rules for Geek of the Week. Locked up. I'm, I'm seeing a still Jason here in the window. I may have been speaking to his his last image. Well, we will hope that Jason is going to come back here and uh, be able to join in for, for Geek of the Week. Um, I will share mine quickly. It is... Circle with Disney. Um, tonight I have actually taken our daughter's phone off of a, uh, basically surveillance, parent surveillance service called TeenSafe, uh, which gives, gives limited ability to monitor archive text messages and things like that. Um, but more, uh, gives you insight into, um, basically, pausing the internet and being able to put limits as far as when, when your, your uh, phone is active and can be utilized. And so I found via the uh, committed podcast, which I, which I love listening to pretty much every week, this product called circle with Disney. And so it's a hundred dollar product and it requires um, basically that you just download an app and connect your wireless uh, network to it. And then it allows you to monitor all of the devices that are on your home network. So these are all, all those circles are little devices that are on our home wifi right now. And I'm identifying, you know, which one is Rachel's, which one is Sarah's, which one is, is, is dads and moms. And at a very, you know, basic level, what it does is it breaks down the screen time by app even on like YouTube, whether you're in Safari on your phone or you're in the YouTube app, and it's going to give us some data about about screen time and where we're spending our time respectively on our devices. And then, if we want to, we could impose some limits, which we may or may not do. But we can do that as a total aggregate by person, or we could do it by app category. Um, And we can also uh, set bedtimes, which is probably a good idea for me as well. And so, anyway, um, this is—it's hundred dollars to just run on your Wi-Fi network. Um, but then if you want it to work when you're on data, then that is $5 a month, and it works for up to 10 devices. And somehow there's some really magic mojo here that works with a VPN as well as a mobile device manager, and I don't have that part configured yet. Uh, but I reached out on Twitter to Carl Hooker, who is really knowledgeable about all things digital citizenship. He said uh, they have a number of parents in his school district in Eanes ISD down in Austin, Texas, using it. And so I'm curious to see how this is going to work. But I think it's it's this combined with um, a Kim Commando tip that I'll link here as well, that if you want to monitor your kids' text messages on an iPhone, uh, you can basically set the messages app up on your laptop to um, just go ahead and, and receive all of their messages and be able to monitor those. So uh, as Wes promoting surveillance in the family, uh, yes, I am. <laughs> as the father of teenage daughters, it's become abundantly clear that we need to be checking in on multiple levels with them and i'm interested in using these tools not to be draconian and unreasonable but to have a little insight and also to to think about balance not only in their lives but in ours as well that was a long geek of the week and i think that gave time for jason to reconnect so would you like to take us out with your geek of the week jason
1: Yes, thank you, Wes, for putting up with my, I waited till the end to, to crap out, but I've re-jumped on my Verizon connection. So, um, I can be quick about mine. Um, I, uh, I am the NCC Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, and as part of my duties there, I help connect with teachers via our blog, blog.ncc.org, and two years ago, I started a project that was kind of half in, half out uh, is the way I'll describe it as opposed to using a maybe more colorful way of putting it. But um, I was putting together a comprehensive list of Chrome and alternatives to desktop software so you can use a Chromebook as a full-fledged, full-time desktop or laptop computer. Um, The link that I've put in our show notes, which is techsavvy.link slash Chrome OS... Uh, is actually not working right now, which is part of what I was trying to do in the background uh, when my connection died out. But I'll make sure it gets pointed towards the the, the documents. Currently a draft. Um, I'd love feedback on my Twitter uh, account in particular, at TechSavvyTeach. Uh, but the idea is, is I'm going to start maintaining a long updated list of alternatives to do browser-only um, to be productive, uh, for pieces. And, um, I've always loved Chromebooks. I think the model is pretty brilliant. It's really great for schools. But I get asked by teachers a lot to say, yeah, that's really great, but it's missing X, right? And I want to have a comprehensive answer of stuff that I've vetted along with, uh, Mike, who also works with me on this project, uh, Mike Augustinelli at Mike Gusto, um, on Twitter. Uh, we, um, you really want to have good answers for teachers and would love feedback on this list and also look at alternatives. But the bottom line is, like, I'm working remotely uh, two days this week from my job, and I'm on a Chromebook right now, and it's just no problem. And that's partly because I've developed some processes to do that, but I want to start being more proactive about helping teachers that have Chromebooks in their schools do that. Um, I also think that as Windows 10 S becomes a, a, a more popular operating system in schools, I think it's going to have a slow start. But once it gets going, I think it could be a big alternative to Chrome OS. Um, a lot of these will also work on a Chrome, or I'm sorry, Windows 10 S device, um, as well. So, you know, the web is the future. Not the desktop apps will go away per se. But if you can get it done on a, a, a web browser, I think that's generally the way I think you should go. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, evidence that Jason Neifer has drank the Google Kool-Aid,
0: sips it daily, and wants to share it with friends. Jason, where can people find you online if they would like to read more of your tech-savvy goodness?
1: I am on the Twitters at TechSavvyTeach. I blog at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And my day job is that I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, where we're getting things done every day of the week um, in lovely Missoula, Montana, MontanaDigitalAcademy.org or MontDigAcad on the Twitters.
0: And I am Wes Fryer, W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org as my blog, which I have really not been updating, but I'm going to be getting into more of a blogging routine, and we want to encourage you to please follow us on Twitter. We are edtechsr there, and you'll be able to download 32-kilobit audio version of tonight's show and the rest of our 57 other episodes that we've done so far. You can also download the video versions and subscribe to us on YouTube. We are here normally on Wednesday nights and do plan to be back next week on July 26th for episode 59, which will be more of a normal show where we will take a look at some recent articles and Talk about those from an educational lens. So, we want to give a special shout out to Peggy George, who was participating and sharing links with us in the chat room. We had another viewer who still hung with us. I think we had three at one point. Uh, whoever you are, thank you for joining. And if you're Ben Wilcoff, I won't always ask you to join. I felt bad, but Ben had revealed himself and maybe was feeling coerced. He's been our 12th man before jumping in. But anyway, if you are interested in joining, we would love to know about that. Reach out to us on Twitter. And until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and be an advocate for net neutrality. Your voice is needed. Speak out, contact your representatives, and help educate those around you about the importance of the topic.